think you've had trouble with women, right? Listen to this one, man. From Belgrade, Yugoslavia. While fleeing a woman who got angry with him at dinner, while fleeing a woman who got so mad at him while they were having dinner, she attacked him in the restaurant. A diner fell 50 feet down a cliff and landed in a cage full of hungry brown bears. And all 17 bears attacked him, including the woman with the scissors. He is now in the hospital tonight. And it was one hell of a night at the restaurant. That's all I got to say. <laughs> I mean, you think you have problems. I like the idea of falling down into a cage of bears. <laughs> oh, jeez. You know, I, I think... Uh, Yes, and we would also, speaking of, uh, of uh, life in the raw, uh, we would also like to salute another little Sunday life drama. Hey, you know, have you ever noticed that that, that plays and dramas, when you go to see, uh, say, like TV shows, and, all kind of, and you watch a, a drama, uh, you can always tell a second-rate drama. It's got... Um, it's got... Uh, there's certain actors that are always in all the second-rate dramas on TV. Uh... For example, Hal Holbrook is in every third thing that's on television. And uh, you know that that's a quickie production. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> he's always the concerned senator. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's right. Doris, Cloris Leachman is in a lot of them, too. But uh, nevertheless, uh, they're never about anything that you can recognize. I mean, the, it, it, life is not like that in your house. Uh, <laughs> in fact, if, if, can you imagine what it would be like if anybody ever wrote a drama, a real drama, about the way fights and stuff happen in real families? I mean, about, you know, the real problems? That, that first hit me when I went to see... Uh, I was, I was, at this time, I was working in the actor's studio. I was in the actor's studio for a while, and, and they were always doing these scenes, see? From, from new, you know, from plays and stuff guys were working on, I was even doing them myself... And, and and once in a while I get this strange sensation. You know, I've never seen anything like this actually happen in real life. It only happens in drama. It's called drama. And uh, people, you know, live one way in drama, and real life is another thing. So I went to see uh, uh, Virginia Woolf. You remember that? I've never heard any any man and wife argue like that in real life. Not about that kind of stuff. So I figured, well, drama is one thing, life is another. Uh, literature is one thing, life is another. Movies are one thing, life is another. And I wonder what would be happen to, what would happen if they ever came together. If if a guy ever made a movie about the way life really is. I mean it would be so totally inconclusive. <laughs> I mean to complete yeah, absolutely no uh, just you know a lot of sort of aimless talk. Uh, sort of, you know, sort of fooling around. Uh, a lot of talk about absolutely irrelevant stuff. Yet, it may be the only stuff that is relevant. In other words, the relevant stuff is only talked about in movies and films and plays. The real stuff that we're concerned about is talked about in life. Like endless discussions about how much gas mileage you get. 
I've never heard a guy in a play have a long argument with another guy about whether or not he's damn as much gas mileage as he's getting. And yet I hear this all the time around here. <laughs> you know, or a long discussion. Gee, boy, is this coffee rotten? You know, wow. And then there's a long discussion about rotten coffee. Uh, in other words, life... It, now, here, here's what started me off. What a great idea for a one-act play. This is in Scotland. Now, you would never think of the Scots as being hot-blooded, would you? Now, if it came from someplace like Caracas, uh, you'd, you'd, you'd kind of expect it. But this is Greenock, Scotland. A man who set fire to his father's house and burned to the ground told police investigators he did it because his father and brother had beaten him in dominoes. Now, that's a, that's a fantastic idea. Now, if, if I wrote this play, you see, you see these three guys sitting there, and it opens up, the curtain comes up, see, and you hear the faint sound of bagpipes in the distance. After all, it's Scotland. You know, you have to show, set the scene, see. It is Scotland. And uh, you see these three doer Scotsmen who are supposed to be passionless. You know, doer Scotsmen. They're only supposed to get uh, hung up on money and stuff like that. And one Scotsman is saying, he says, Ach, I. They always say that in Scotch plays. He says, Ach, I. There's a fine move here. And he, he lays the domino down. It's a pregnant pause. And the other ones, you see his eyes slowly dilating. He says, Ach, you have beaten me again. And at that point, he leaps up and runs out and into the john, near the water running. See, we're setting the scene. And then the second one says, Oh, come on, here and play another game. Come on. He hollers, Come on, be a good sport and play another game. He comes back into Rome and they start another game. He is this time beaten in less than a minute and a half. <laughs> well, of course. The final scene where the stage is on fire and the firemen are there squirting water, people are screaming, and they're carrying the kids out. Uh, one act play called Passion in Scotland. Now, uh, <laughs> no one would believe it. I'll tell you. I, I, I guarantee you Clive Barnes would say it stretches the credulity that two, that three Scotsmen would burn down the house over a game of dominoes. That's the only kind of thing people would do it over. I am sorry. Listen, I saw a guy almost brain his wife one day. And you know what it came about as? All right, I'll tell you what it came about as, how it happened. If I wrote this play, it would never go. Uh, the two of them were in a shopping center. It was a buddy of mine. And I must say, I was with them. They're in a shopping center. Now, they went into the A&P. Everything went... You know, sort of all right in the A&P. Well, you know how it is. You know, you're milling around and half the stuff. You know, so they mill around. They finally get back out. I'm with them, see. And on the way out, my friend saw by the door a collection of plants. You know how sometimes they'll sell uh, plants in the store, see. And he sees a plastic pot, a green plastic pot, that has growing out of it a geranium. There were geraniums. So he says, hey, wait a minute. And uh, he picks up a geranium, said 49 cents on it. He runs back around and, and goes to the checkout county, you know, express land, see, with a geranium. 
He's got the geranium. He pays the, the, the money, and now he owns a geranium. He comes out of the store. I'm with him now, and I little realizing I'm about to see a great human drama. Uh, we, you know, so he, we come out of the store. It's a nice sunny day. And he says, boy, look at this great geranium that I got for 49 cents. His wife, Peggy, says nothing. We get in the car, and he's holding the geranium and driving the car. Somehow, this geranium really got him. Now, why a geranium got to this guy at this particular moment in life, I do not know. Any more than I can tell you, this is probably a Scotsman who ordinarily is fairly logical. Why he finally blew his stack over a game of dominoes, burnt the house down, uh, is difficult to <laughs> explain. It was the domino syndrome. Well, my friend was going through a very difficult problem, which they call the, in fact, it's, it's been long since identified by psychologists as the, as the geranium trauma. He was going through the first stages of the geranium trauma, which incidentally involved falling in love with a geranium. Uh, you, you have to, for some reason or other, find yourself uh, totally involved in geranium. So he picked it up. He was holding it in the front seat. And they're driving along, and they come to a stoplight. I'm sitting in the back seat, right? We come to a stoplight, and he is sitting there looking at the geranium, talking about the geranium, and uh, discussing the geranium. Now, you know how the geraniums smell? have a kind of a bad smell, actually. They don't smell very good. There's a kind of a sharp, acrid smell. I can smell a geranium right now. I can imagine the smell. It's a curious... It's a, it's a smell that's a little like mold. And he's got... Maybe this is part of it. He's got the geranium in his hand. We're sitting there talking. And his wife is not saying much. She's just looking at the geranium. His foot slips off the clutch. While talking about the geranium, his car lurches forward and hits the car ahead of us. It just went clunk, you know, into the trunk. His geranium flies up. He's got the geranium. He gets out of the car holding the geranium. The other guy gets out of his car, and they're both standing there looking at the trunk, and they're milling around. You see the guys with the, with the driver's licenses out. Little did I realize that this I was in the middle of what was going to be an escalating drama. He is standing out there with the geranium. A cop walks over looks at the guy with the geranium. There's a lot of talk going on. And uh, finally, Peggy gets out of the front seat. She says, I'm going to go over and see what's happening. I said, better stay out of it, Peggy. Uh, she says, no, I'm going to see what's happening. Looks like George is having problems. So she walks over to the hang, you know, what's going on over there. I see him talking. Well, now they all come back into the car. We sit, you know, I'm sitting in the back seat. George sits down in the front seat with his geranium. Peggy sits over by the door. The car starts again. We start moving. They have exchanged insurance numbers and all that jazz. And Peggy is now different. She says, oh, you don't know how stupid you look sitting there with that geranium. He says, what do you mean, stupid? Are you going to try to tell me it was because of this geranium that we had that problem back there? She said, I can't stand geraniums. Well, I will quickly elide and delete the more painful episodes that occurred on the way home. And I was, again, a witness. I don't have to tell you that exactly three months later, I was testifying in a court. Yes.
It got the divorce? She tried to stab him with an ice pick? Her mother threw the geranium out down the air shaft? That broke the camel's back? He kicked her out that night? And uh, I wound up testifying in a court. Now, that would be a great one-act drama. <laughs> the, the family that broke up over the geranium. And nobody would believe it. And, uh, you know, I, 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 so, so I say that what is believable is generally that which happens uh, only in dramas. What is unbelievable is what happens to us. Well, no, nobody believes life, I mean, really. And, and, and uh, you have to write things... You have to write things in a very elliptical way. You cannot write that the fact that they, they separated over geranium. I saw, listen, I saw one time an entire neighborhood battle break out between about 18 families over a tire patch that a guy put his tire on the back of the, on the, back of the house on the porch. He was patching his tire. You ever see anybody vulcanize a tire, you know, with the tire patch thing? And he's putting a tire patch on there, see, and he lets it dry. He takes the inner tube and puts it on the back porch, and a kid ne from next door came over and pulled the patch off. Well, one thing led to the next. Dogs were barking, people's houses were burning, and the police came. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, speaking of great moments in, in uh, cars, I think cars have played a great role in our lives that we never even, you know, never even discuss. I want to, you know, the car, anybody who thinks the car is a status symbol or a sex symbol does not know much about cars. I can only say that people who write about cars from the status standpoint and the sex symbol standpoint are not car owners. Uh, they simply don't know about cars. This is WOR New York. Cars are far more insidious than just being simple status symbols. It reminds me, this is WOR New York speaking to the insidious uh, RKO General Station. <laughs> you don't have to know a lot about wines to know the time for Dubonnet is before. People can't spell it, and there's hardly a soul who knows it's an aperitif. But don't let that scare you away. All you need to know is this Dubonnet's the wine that's made to go before lunch, before dinner. Just pour it over the rocks, add a twist, soda if you like. That's Dubonnet before, made to make what comes after that much better. Dubonnet Company, New York, New York. Ah, uh, très élégant, Dubonnet. Let's see, we have another little uh, goodie to lay upon you here. Uh, Marty Glickman and Larry Grantham will bring you all the live action and fantastic color of the New York Jets and the New York Giants football game. That's the Jets and the Giants football game at Yaley Bowl. Uh, remember, there is no live TV coverage of this fantastic annual event and your jet to action this coming Sunday afternoon at 1.35 on WOR Radio. Uh, jet and the New York Giants, no TV. You are in the catbird seat. Yeah, let's see, we have a little note here on how to 
how to stay cool this summer. This is one way. Try it the French way, you know, the elegant French way with a chilled bottle of red Beaujolais wine. Oh, man, you'll really be living. Just any Beaujolais won't quite make it. You must have a genuine Beaujolais. Alexis Lachine make a fine wine. Actually, they import a fine wine. They're French, and they're one of the finest French wines brought over to America, and incidentally, one of the most popular. While others have increased their prices, Alexis Lachine is still at its same low price, and the prices of wines are really booming, going up. You've noticed that, Jerry? So I would suggest you check out Alexis Lachine Beaujolais, and it goes great with almost anything. It's a fine, light, uh, sort of a semi-dry, fresh wine. If you haven't tried Beaujolais, try it. Alexis Lachine Beaujolais, the anytime wine, imported by Bass Charrington Vinters of New York. Alexis Lachine. Sing it, gals. Alexis Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, I remember. You know, one of the great, uh, uh, one of the great, uh, basic, really basic uh, dramas that ever happened in my life. Uh, actually, yeah, everybody has little things that happen in their lives that are that have become family legends, real family legends. And uh, you know, like the time that uh, Uncle Fred lost his wallet. Uh, you know, <laughs> now you have to, a lot of people don't recognize their life as having had things happen to them, but you can remember them. The time that they stole a car, uh, you know, the various things that happened that caused great family arguments. But I, I, I thought, I, I thought that the car, you know, uh, has been largely neglected as the source of family strife. Real strife. It begins subtly. For example, getting the car when you're a kid. Have you ever borrowed a car from your old man? This causes tension for starters. Uh, taking the car out when you've borrowed it and backing it into a pole. Oh, gee, I'll tell you. I tell you, I, I, one of the worst things that ever happened to me in my life, I was, I was 16, I had just gotten my driver's license, and uh, I was driving the car. That's about the fourth time that my old man let me have his Pontiac. In in solo, I was. It was in solo flight. I am driving. <laughs> I'm driving along, and I went through. You know, absolutely, totally legal. I drove through a green light quite slowly. You know, I was just learning. Really, I was just you know beginning to feel my oats as a driver, and I go through this green light. And a guy comes right through the red light and clobbers the back of the of the Pontiac and flattens the back fender right up against the wheel. It wouldn't even go. It was squealing. I don't have to tell you what happened at home that night. It wasn't a question of guilt or innocence. It was a question that I'd done it. I had the car when it happened. And so all these various things add to the, 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 the car becomes a symbol of fight, battle, truth, liberty, uh, fleeing, uh, freedom, all these things. Trapped. Have you ever paid for a car when you didn't have any money? A car can trap you, man. Oh, boy. 
<laughs> I mean, with those payments, you have no idea how quickly a month can go by when you owe on a car. I mean, time is all relative. And when you are, I, I, I was 18 when I bought this car, and I, I, I lost my job shortly thereafter. And uh, 30 days would go by in eight, nine seconds before the next payment came up. Unbelievable. I learned about times with my car. But the worst, the worst drama that I ever saw erupt as a, in a car was with my Uncle Carl. I had this Uncle Carl. Now, everybody has uncles in his family. And um, uncles, I think, almost are, are predictable. They, they fit in various categories. For example, there is the uncle. There is, the, is there always the uncle who's made it? Uh, <laughs> and he doesn't come over much. <laughs> That's the one that doesn't, doesn't come around your house often. And then, then there is the, the uncle who is a borderline bum. Uh, then there's the indeterminate in-between uncles. And, you know, speaking of, of games, when you talk about the... the, uh, the uh, maybe the reason I related to this domino game is that I had an aunt, and I still do, who was the most fanatical, angry games player I've ever seen in my life. Have you ever had family battles erupt over a game? Now, most people don't take games that seriously. Me, I can't, I can't get involved in games. I've always wondered about the people who are these, quote, celebrity panelists on these daytime celebrity-type games. You know, the ones who uh, guess who the guy is that really is the watermelon grower? Uh, you, you've seen those games? Uh, people hopping around going, oh, 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 one, two, three, uh, uh, chicken, 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 they yell. Oh, come on. I mean... You know, and and there's a whole there's a whole group of people. Uh, apparently, uh, apparently, Kitty, who is Kitty Carlisle? Apparently, she takes these games seriously. She's on all those things. <laughs> I mean, a grown-up woman who likes to guess who is the real watermelon grower. Uh, Bill Cullen, he's another one. He's on all those. Tom Poston, these are all called quote celebrities. You don't know what they do except appear on games called celebrities. They don't do anything outside of that. I sit around and guess who the who the real uh, who the real second story man is, uh, you know who who's the real bank robber? Will the real bank robber stand up? And they all guess. Uh, some people believe in games, others don't. Well, my aunt Teresa, fantastic. Uh, everybody has an aunt. I, at least I always like to think that everybody has an aunt who is a borderline nut. Well. Our, my Aunt Teresa, and I hate to admit this, but my Aunt Teresa was so legendary in our family that, uh, that, that there were five daughters. My mother had, five, uh, had four sisters, and uh, this was one of them. And that whenever there, was a, whenever there was a family Sunday, you know, when everybody was going over to Uncle, uh, Uncle Carl's house or, or uh, my grandma's house, the check would be made, is Teresa going to be there? Because if she was going to be there, there was only one way this could end. And it always ended the same way. <laughs> Have you ever been involved in giant family yellings? Well, uh, we would all be sitting around in the... In the uh, you know, I'm a little kid. I'm about seven, see. My, my brother's about six. My cousin Buddy is always there. My uh, cousin Merle. My, uh, my cousin Arlene. The whole crowd is all there. It's a Sunday afternoon. And the door would open. She would always come late. The door would open, and in would come Aunt Teresa. 
who was vaguely shaped like a bowling pin. Uh, she would come in, <laughs> and, and, and she had these big black rimmed glasses. She would come walking in, and she would start out fairly, fairly, uh, you know, fairly nice. She, she'd say, everybody's here. Oh, yes, I brought, uh, I brought potato salad. And uh, everyone would say, yes, that's, that's great. My uncle, my, my, uh, my grandfather, and four or five uh, cousins would be in the kitchen playing pinochle. They played pinochle all the time. And this is a typical Sunday afternoon, boring as hell. Oh God, when you're when you're a kid and you're you're hauled into a thing like that, it's fantastically boring. And uh, you know, back home, uh, kids were doing real stuff like playing ball and all. And here I am hanging around my grandmother's house and they're playing pinochle. And we would wait for the great action to begin. And it would start right. Yeah, we would wait. Me and my cousin Buddy would would actually watch for it. And my kid brother, we'd wait for it. And uh, you'd hear them in there playing pinochle or playing cards, and uh, and uh, the women would be playing pinochle or or no, they play bingo. You ever seen women play bingo with that bell? And they they keep hollering bingo and they ding 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 ding. My aunt Teresa would be playing with my aunt Kate and my aunt uh, Min. Uh, she would be playing with my mother and my grandmother, and the men are playing pinochle. The rest of us are just sitting around waiting for the real game to begin. The kids, we are waiting. And we would exchange information, you know, back and forth. They're running out of bridge mix. Uh, <laughs> you know, stuff like... And, and uh, we used to go out once in a while in the middle of this, this Sunday afternoon. Everybody spent Sunday afternoons at the relatives. We used, to, we used to go downstairs, quote, we would have to go to the store to get butter or something like that. See, they'd send me and Buddy and Arlene down to the store to get butter. Well, you know, that was a great moment of freedom. See, we'd get out on the street. This was all in Chicago, in case you're interested. All in Chicago. We'd go down on the street in Chicago, and uh, we'd, we'd stretch that getting butter out, like, for two hours. <laughs> I mean, just to stay out of that damn house. And finally, we'd have to get back, because we know it's going to be dinner time, see. And already, the action has begun to develop. My Aunt Teresa is now playing bingo silently. She has been talking up to this point. You could just see the development of it. And so it would finally happen. You'd hear this. Somebody would say, bingo, ding. And Aunt Tracy, you'd hear that voice. And it would hit the fan. And she would holler, Fred, you come in here. We're not going to stay here any longer. It's always this way every time we come. And my mother said, oh, my God, it's Teresa again. And I'd be yelling and hollering. And everybody's milling around, and she would be standing by the door. I remember the scenes of her leaving. I'm never going to see any of you again. I don't want to hear anybody hollow. And out she would go. And dead silence now in my aunt, in my my grandmother's house after Teresa's gone. And my mother says, "You know, she was pretty nice today." <laughs> that meant we went a good four hours before she finally decided to break the windows and kick everybody in the head and leave. Now, that was Aunt Teresa, who and, and was always over games. Any time a game was played, she was a maniac. And I, I, I don't know what it is. I think it's, it's uh, it, this is particularly evident among women. Now, I'm not being anti-woman or chauvinist, but I've, I've seen women get angrier about games than men ever get. Can you imagine how it would be if women played professional football? Good God Almighty. 
<laughs> I mean, that would be something to watch. But uh, nevertheless, you know, as I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there, you know, as a kid, I'm learning all these various lessons and stuff. And then I, I had this, this other aunt, uh, Aunt Kate, who would answer every problem with a slogan. She would say things like, uh, you know, Janie, a penny saved is a penny earned. I'm on my way down to get some candy. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you should look before you leap. Look before you leap. You know, I'm going down to get bubble gum. And <laughs> then she would say things like, a, a fool and his money are soon parted. And uh, that was that was another type of man. Incidentally, uh, speaking of, of cliches, again, uh, this has to apply. Uh, the world of cliches is is getting more and more with us today. I don't know why I'm I'm uh, attuned to cliches, but there's there's a real thing going on. And if, and one of our listeners the other night, he says, "Listen, he says, Shepherd, he says, you know, some people collect stamps, other people collect uh, rare coins." He says, some guys collect women. He says, that can be an exciting hobby, I'll tell you. I agree, that is. A friend of mine did that for a long time. After that, you generally find yourself collecting summonses and stuff, too. It eventually results in other things, like gunfire. He shows his scars once in a while where various husbands got him. But uh, he, <laughs> that's right, I'm not kidding you. <laughs> his, his proudest, his proudest, uh, uh, proudest uh, possession is a scar on his right side that he got from a husband who stuck him with a knife sharpener. And he, he, he discusses this as if, you know, it's a battle wound. And, uh, you know, it's all part of it. It's a status symbol. But uh, he says, I collect old slogans. And he sent me a whole list of them. you have any... any uh, uh, give, me, give me some uh, nice... Uh, uh, old slogan. Yeah, I want that, that first one. I want some old slogan music. Now listen carefully to the kind of stuff that people, many people, uh, direct their lives to. I mean, I'm talking about old slogans. Now, now wait. Now, before you do this, I want to say something here. Uh, George Ade, who was a fine writer at one point in America, made, the, made an interesting point in one of his uh, stories. He says, the more experience you have with life, the more you realize that many of the old dogmatic slogans, like look before you leap, are actually true. Do you buy that or not, Barney? Do you, Jerry? How about you guys? Well, no, I mean seriously. Do you, do you really... Do you really or, or do they sound... Now, now, now here, now I'm going to read a whole series of old... Uh, not, they're not really slogans. They're actually a turn-of-the-century witticisms about life. Uh, aphorisms. You know, people don't write that way anymore. Uh, you're never going to find Norman Mailer uh, writing an aphorism about life. Like, you know, look before you leave, and it's quoted forever, you know, with the aphorism Mailer. Uh, people don't write in the aphoristic terms any longer. In other words, one little line that capsulizes a whole area of human experience, human knowledge. That's that's isn't done anymore. And all of these were written before nineteen hundred or about nineteen hundred. Listen carefully. Oh give me a little music. 
Yeah, that's that's uh, that's aphoristic music. In fact, I'll tell you what you do. Take that one off and give me the other LP. Take that one off. The other one may be even better. Just stop it. Yeah, that's better. All right, here's the first one. See if you can apply this to your life. There are some minds who are so small that it would certainly ruin the eyes to read them. That was turn-of-the-century witticism. Although this is not a bad one. To most people, a savage nation is one that doesn't wear uncomfortable clothes. I don't know. By the way, this one this one really applies to Watergate. Many a man dodging a trolley car has been run over by an automobile. Now that does apply to, <laughs> to Watergate. In order to preserve an unspotted reputation... You've got to look out that nobody spots you. Oh, God. The automobile is the rich man's wine and the poor man's chaser. My theory about the mosquito is that he has humanity stung, going and coming. Oh, God, he's awful. Life ain't in holding a good hand. It's in playing a poor hand well. Hey, that's that's hold it. Let's let's stop at that one right there. Life ain't in holding a good hand, but in playing a poor hand well. Now almost everybody gets dealt a poor hand in life. Uh, listen to this one. There's isn't any such thing as being your own boss in this world, unless you're a tramp. And then there's the constable. The <laughs> the only animal which the Bible calls patient is an ass. And that's both good doctrine and good natural history. Uh, the man who cannot tell a lie is not half so rare as he who does not always insist on blurting out the truth. That applies to, to a lot of guys in the Watergate hearings. <laughs> in other words, it's a lot easier to fight a guy who can't tell a lie, but the rarer guy is one who does not always insist on blurting out the truth blabbing. Hold it. The world is full of blabberers. A good many people have an idea that they will get to tell on their neighbors on the day of judgment. That's another Watergate spot. Listen carefully. A good many people have an idea that they will get to tell on their neighbors on the day of judgment. You know, you know, talking about the day of judgment, if I may bring up something that is a little uncomfortable here, I am not a religious type, as you could probably tell from my work. Uh, and yet, uh, there are religious people. And I'm not going to be one to say they're wrong. Now, you know, it, 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 uh, I'll just... Uh, many people have asked me about it. You know, they've written and said, what is your religion? Now, I don't have any religion. I've never had one. In fact, I, uh, in my family, when I grew up, uh, the subject of religion was never, never ever brought up. It was just, no, it was uh, we never, you know, I wasn't involved in church or Sunday school or anything like that. And it simply did not play a role in my life. I never thought of myself as being any denomination of, of, of any type. It's just like, well, it's like, it's like, uh, let's say, uh, you hear about people who are, let's say for argument's sake, who are uh, polo fans. And you never think, you hear about it occasionally. 
And you never think of yourself as being anti-polo or pro-polo. It's just something that doesn't have any place in your life. So I had no anti-religious attitude, nor pro-religious attitude. It was just something that other people were doing. It was, uh, you know, kind of opaque to me, kind of uh, mysterious. I remember all the time there was a, there was a friend of mine uh, whose family belonged to this very strange religion. <laughs> yeah, and they they used to sit around on Friday nights with the with the lights off, with red lights in the house. And uh, they would watch for a bugle to rise off the table. Yeah, yeah, they they, they were spiritualists or something, and uh, I it just it was totally mysterious to me. <laughs> it was religion, and and it was very mysterious to me, and it never played any role in my life except that you know I was curious about it, just like having a friend you know who grows ferns. Uh, you're not going to get excited about it, but you're going to be a little curious once in a while. You know what's with the ferns? Well. So, so religion never played a role in my life, and I and I remember one of the great moments in my life that had to do with this, is when I was inducted in the army. One of the things they asked you. Now, by this time, I'm already accepted, right? I've gone through uh, my physical and everything else, and uh, I have been sworn in. Already been sworn in in the army, so you can't back out. So there it is. I'm in the army. And I'm still, you know, in civilian clothes and all that stuff. And we're going through a long line. And uh, these guys are writing down information on you. And here's a, a, a tech sergeant sitting there. See, he's, he's, a, he's got five stripes, looking very official. He's got these OD uniforms and all that stuff. And uh, he says to me, uh, looks up, and he says, um, he said, uh, he's, he's looking down at his, uh, his form, and he's got a pencil, you know, and he says, hey, uh, your religion, please, give me your religion. I said, well, I, I, uh, I don't have any religion. I don't have any. I said, what do you mean you don't have any? And I, and give me, what, what, what religion are you? He said, are you Jew? I said, no, no. Uh, you Catholic? No. He said, okay, you're a Protestant. I said, no. I'm, <laughs> I'm not, it's always assumed by a lot of people that if you're not Jewish, if you're not Catholic, you're a Protestant. Well, now, wait a minute. That's, that's making a hell of an assumption. Well, you may use a religious term. Uh, after all, hell is a religious concept. <laughs> and, 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 and he says, you're a Protestant. I said, no, I'm not. I'm not a, what do you mean a Protestant? Now, here we're, you know, and I'm holding up the line. See, there's a lot of guys behind me. And, and I says, well, what's, what's this going to do with anything? He says, I, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I don't know, you know, really, I don't have any religion. He said, what, are you an atheist? I said, an atheist? Well, wait a minute, what is an atheist? He says, well, that's a guy that don't believe in none of them religions. I said, well, I can't say that. I don't, I don't really, you know, I can't say I'm an atheist, really, because I can't say I believe. I don't, I don't know anything about it. I'm not a really, I don't have any religion. An atheist. He says, well, he says, you got to put something on your dog tags. I said, you have to put something on my dog tags. Did you know that there is a regulation that on your dog tags there has to be stamped your blood type, your serial number, your name, of course, and your religion? Right, you know, this was a new concept to me. So I said, uh, well, uh, uh, you know, I said, I, I, then I, I decided I was going to be funny, see, because uh, that's all my life I've gotten into trouble. Some people have no sense of humor at all, and I've discovered, <laughs> I've discovered that, that you can get yourself into one hell of a mess 
by just, you know, seeing something funny in something that most people don't see anything funny in, you know. So I said, oh, I'll tell you what. I said, put me down uh, as a druid. And he put his pen down. He says, you're a what? And I says, a druid. You can put me down as a druid. You know, it doesn't matter one way or the other. I mean, uh, you know. I just put a D down on my dog tag for druid. He says, we don't have no Ds. You either have C for Catholic, J for Jew, you have P for Protestant, or A for Atheist. We don't have no Ds. Now, what is a druid? I said, well, we, a druid is a religion. I said, it's a, we, uh, we believe in, uh, in oak trees and stuff. And uh, we have the scroll. See, what we do, we, have, we, have, uh, we, we believe in the great god of the forest. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, you mean, what do you mean a great god? Do you go to church? I said, oh, yes. Well, not really. I said, our church is the forest. And uh, we, we, uh, we go out on a, on a Sunday, and we sit under the oak trees, and we read from a birch bark scroll about the, about the great god of the forest. And, and we, we uh, he said, hey, Lieutenant. And I said, you know, I'm standing there. I, 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 thought, I, I think I'm being funny, see, at this point. It's beginning to escalate. I did not realize it at that point. You know, I was only 17, you know, and I didn't really know a lot about the bureaucracy. And he, when he turned and hollered, oh, Lieutenant, Lieutenant, I should have said, oh, oh put, put, put anything down. Put, put the, <laughs> any number down. At that point, a lieutenant walks over and says, yes, Sergeant. He said, this man here says he's a druid. Ask him what his religion is. He says he's a druid. And the lieutenant says, is this true? He says, you are a druid. By the way, the lieutenant obviously knew what a druid was. He says, you are a druid. Well, at that point, I was deeply committed. There were guys all around me, see, waiting in line. I said, yes, sir, yes, sir. He said, they will put down a D for him, sergeant. The sergeant says, a D, sir? We only have, we've had Catholics, Protestants, Jews, and atheists, but uh, I, I haven't put, it down, put down a D yet, sir. He says, put a D down for him. So he wrote D down in this thing where it says religion, D. Well, I didn't think anything about it until about a week later, after they had issued my dog tags, I didn't even know what all these numbers were. There was a little D on the bottom of my, my dog tags. And so one day, after I was in, in the, the first company I was ever in, uh, about two weeks after I got in this company, I come back from a hike... And the first sergeant is out there, you know, he's got, about to let us go back to the barracks, and he's got a clipboard with a lot of stuff on it. He says, uh, will the following men uh, report to the orderly room? Uh, he reads off a bunch of names, and I'm standing there because he's not going to read my name off. And all of a sudden he says, uh, uh, Shepard, uh, JP1609846, uh, Shepard here? Is uh, Private Shepard here? And I said, yes, sir. Put my hand up. He says, will you report to the chaplain? I said, report to the chaplain. He said, yeah, report to the chaplain. I said, when, Sergeant? He said, well, as soon as you can. The chaplain wants to talk to you. In fact, you can do it before chow. Well, we're going to have chow in about 12 minutes. So I walked down to the chaplain tent. You know, I don't know what this is about. I figure, you know, who knows? You know, I'm going to get a leave or something. Anybody, anytime anybody went to the chaplain in our company, it was because uh, his grandmother had gotten hit by a truck. Uh, you know, or they're going to break it to him gently that uh, he isn't getting into the OCS that he applied for, some goodie like that. So I walk in there, and here's this guy, the chaplain, sitting there, rimless glasses. He's got the little cross on the on the collar, you know, he's a captain. He says, so sit down, uh, soldier. I said, yes, sir. He said, I have uh, your 
form 32 here. Uh, it says uh, that you're, you're, uh, it's, it's uh, under religion, it says D. Could you explain that to me? You know, this has happened like, it seems like years before. 50,000 things had happened to me in between now and the time I was sworn. And I says, D, oh, oh yes, sir, uh, uh, I'm a druid. He says, you're a druid? I said, yes, I, I'm a druid. I'm curious. He says, what church do you attend? I said, well, we druids don't attend church, sir. You know, uh, he said, you know, I've studied you in theology. He says, you know, I'd, I'd really like to talk to you about your religion. He was fascinated. He says, I, we've studied you in, in, in theology, you know. Uh, druidism is, uh, is, is a very interesting religion. I said, yes, sir. I knew not a damn thing about druids. And he said, I'd like to spend some time discussing it with you. I said, yes, sir. Two days later, I was transferred. I might add, I'm probably the only registered druid in the history of the contemporary army.